to uh, recap, for those of you who were otherwise entangled with the spiritual work of the Lord somewhere else last Sunday, um, we're going to uh, start here um, in uh, the book of Romans. And so uh, just uh, Paul is teaching or writing, preaching to the church at Rome, and he's talking to uh, the believers in Rome um, as a Gentile church about Father Abraham. Now, the reason why that's important is that we are in some ways like the Roman church. We're not part of the Jewish nation. We don't have Jewish culture or heritage. Um, and uh, that was the same as the Roman church. And Paul is writing to say, hey, look, Abraham, he may have been a cultural icon, a leader of our tribe, of our nation, but he's not just that anymore. Paul was watching Jesus, the death, his resurrection, the coming of the Messiah, and all of a sudden, he was looking at Abraham differently. And he said, wait, Abraham's not just the father of our nation. He's not just a cultural icon, somebody to look up to. He's actually the father of all who believe. The, the word was illuminated for him. And so he's teaching to the book of he's teaching to the church at Rome, and I'm going to start just by reading um, just a few of those verses. And if you get nothing else, just let this word, his word, because Paul's a lot better preacher than I am, let his word sink into your heart and allow you to become fully convinced that God can do what he says he will do. Romans chapter 4. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scripture tells us, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his... Clearly, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship. Somebody say right relationship. A right relationship with God that comes by... So the promise of salvation is received by faith. It is given as a free gift, and we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, if we have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. That is what the scriptures mean when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about a hundred years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this, he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. 
And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Thanks be to God. Yes, amen. And so some of the things we talked about were uh, the first three faith principles that we drew from that text. Um, one is that promises pull us off the sidelines. So uh, Abraham and Sarah were about 75 years old. They had been married for 40, 45 years at that time, um, and they had had no children. And in that culture, that means really there was no posterity. There was no place in the family legacy. Um, there wasn't much to be had about his place or position in society because they had no children. And yet God spoke to him, gave him a promise that pulled him off the sidelines. How many of you have felt like you've been sidelined in your life? Like things have gone past when they're supposed to be. Like there's not really any hope. Like my time has passed. Yeah. But God's promise can pull you off the sidelines. The pursuit of that promise reveals and heals our fears. When we begin to pursue God, it's not as though God says, hey, Bill, here's a one sheet for your life. It's all bulleted points out. Go ahead, just follow them, and each time, just go through check marks, and when you get to, that, when you get to the end, it's graduation time, welcome home. No, he gives us a promise at the top, and then he gives us like two or three lines out of the whole page that are filled in so that when those things happen, hey, we're on the right track. But the rest is a whole lot of blank page. We're walking in pursuit of him, in pursuit of the promise. And so when we pursue him, it makes us keenly aware of our need for being led. That's how our relationship with him is developed. That's how our intimacy with him grows, is we are pursuing a promise, and in thereby God is drawing us unto himself. We're aware of our need to be led, and we're also more sensitive to our surroundings. We're not just checking things off on a timeline. Okay, well, I guess I accomplished that. I'm doing this. Okay, well, I got to be aware of this, this problem. Oh, yep, there it is. Check and check. That's not how life is. We need to be sensitive of our surroundings. And the pursuit of that, when God reveals our fear, it's not to embarrass us or expose us. He reveals our fears to us so that He can heal us. And the third faith principle is that God will redeem our mistakes. God will redeem your mistakes. His grace is more powerful than your mistake. His sovereignty is able to weave the mistake back into the story. I don't know how he does it. Don't claim to, but he does it. He did it for Abraham, and I would say this, this is um, a picture representation of Hagar and Ishmael, and we talked about how Abraham and Sarah, they got frustrated with waiting, and they figured they would manufacture a solution to God's promise and say, hey, why don't uh, you um, 
have relations with Hagar, who is one of my handmaids, and then God will give us a son through, um, through her, and then uh, this, uh, you know, this child could be the inheritor of the promise. Or the, you know, none of us have ever tried to manufacture a solution because we were tired of waiting. Um, this, and, and they paid a handsome price for it. I mean, their family got all messed up. There was enmity and mistrust and resentment and anger blowups and all this. And, you know, and th- you imagine what it was like for Ishmael. He, d- he didn't choose this upon himself, just like there are many children, even in the church, that don't choose the blended family that they were in, right? And yet God said, told Abraham, I have heard you regarding Ishmael, and I will bless him and make him into a great nation, and I will make him the leader of 12 tribes. And he he goes on to basically say that you've made a mistake with Ishmael, but I'm going to weave him in and make him an inheritor of the promise that I gave you anyway. That's amazing. And yet we... allow our mistakes to put us back on the sidelines and say we're disqualified. Our mistakes must, God's going to bench us. He's going to stick us back in the corner. When really, our mistakes, yes, we need to repent and have a contrite heart, but God's not putting you back on the bench. He's keeping you on the field. He's keeping you in the game. He's keeping you in pursuit of his promise, and he'll redeem the mistake right into the story. It doesn't mean you won't pay a price for it. Mistakes come with costs, but not God's punishment. Big difference. So now we pick up uh, the story in uh, Genesis chapter 18. And if you were keeping score like I do, I like to keep score. God keeps score with us, you know, to see if we're obeying um, and, you know, he weighs all of our decisions, and we have an accountant, and if it's more positive at the end, we go to heaven, and if it's more, no, no, that's not it. But there were, f- I'm sorry, Lord. Up until Genesis chapter 18, um, we had, we were keeping just kind of a tally of faith fails and faith victories, not to show whether Abraham was winning or losing, but to see, say that in, in his development of faith, as he grew in God, he he made mistakes, and he also had great victories, and the Lord was weaving and working with him through that process to see the promise come to pass. And so um, in Genesis chapter 18, you know, it says, uh, after 13 years of silence, right, God gave him the silent treatment. Uh, no. Uh, God confirmed his promise again through three travelers. Three dudes show up and say, hey, um, uh, we're looking for a place to stay. Abraham says, great, I've got a great big tent, and Sarah is an awesome chef. She's going to make you a meal, even though she doesn't know it yet. So they show up. Sarah goes in the tent to cook the meal, and they start talking, and these travelers have a word of the Lord for this old man who's 100 years old and said, hey, by the time we come back next year, you guys are going to have a a child. And Sarah, in the tent, overhears it and laughs. She laughs at God. I mean, at the travelers, but it's clear, right? Her faith is not exactly in 
where it's supposed to be in the promise. And I would say that's really a representation of, you know, I don't really talk about uh, Abraham as the father of faith and um, Sarah's just along for the ride. I mean, Abraham and Sarah were together. They were our, for lack of a better term, our parents of faith. They inherited the promise together and they had failures and victories along the way. And this was a point where you could see through Sarah's reaction where she and Abraham were in their faith journey at that moment. Well, uh, after the travelers leave, Abraham says, you know, God told me you laughed at, at, at them. And she says, out of her fear, she lied to her own husband right there. No, I didn't, I didn't do it. And God reconfirms and says, no, yes, you in fact did laugh. Um, and that's a faith fail. So um, we're going to keep going. Genesis um, in 18b, or in the second part, um, God uh, begins to talk to Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah, which is a nearby city. And he has two warrior angels standing by, ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And it says that God tested the character of Abraham uh, by reading him in, really, to what seemed like a fair judgment against the sin of the city. Right? uh, It would have been fair for God just to destroy the city because of its sin and rebellion. Just like it would be fair for him to wipe the earth of all humankind because of our sin and our rebellion against him. But he posits this question to Abraham. He reads him out on the plan, and he's trying to see if Abraham has grown any in his life. Does he know the Lord any better now than he did before? And Abraham then goes on this kind of back and forth with God and said, well, would you save the city for 50 righteous people? Yes. Would you save the city for 30 righteous people? Yes. Would you you save the city for 10 righteous people? Right? He's contending with God. He's pleading with God for mercy. And God is then demonstrating the power of mercy and his love and his, his extension of mercy and love for people in general. He wants to save. He longs to save us. And Abraham could see that. This is a great faith victory. He could see. He didn't have Jesus to look back on. He was looking forward and he could sense through his life there was something about God that was merciful and loving that long to save people. And so he actually co-labors with God to save the righteous people in the city. God brings the righteous people out, his nephew Lot and their household and some others, and they brought him out of the city. And then the two warrior angels go boom and every, you know, it's gone. Um, but that kind of is a foreshadow of the rapture of the church, right? He's going to bring us out. We're no longer appointed to the wrath of God. God's wrath will be poured out on sin, not that he wants to destroy any person. I'm quite certain that every person who will stand to have mercy be shed on them, he will welcome them in and bring them out into the kingdom of his light because his love is so great but that was a faith victory. Then in Genesis 20, um, Abraham is now living, and Sarah, they're living as foreigners in the land of Negev. And if you remember earlier in the story, he deceived Pharaoh uh, and told Pharaoh that Sarah was not actually his wife. It was his sister because he was afraid of getting killed for her. Um, And so I want to tell you, if you don't pass a test 
God is faithful to give you a second chance. Uh, unfortunately, Abraham failed again. Uh, again, and so he tells Abimelech this time, he deceives Abimelech and tells him that Sarah is his sister, which is actually a half-truth because Abraham and Sarah had the same father uh, but different mothers. Uh, that was repopulation of the earth problem post-flood. Um, no comment. Uh, then, uh, but then God intervenes on Abraham's mistake and brings this kind of temporary curse of infertility on the household. Um, and I use, I'm not saying God curses. I, it, I don't know how, uh, any other way to, exp- to explain it. But um, he brings temporary infertility on uh, the household basically to, exp- uh, to reveal this, this problem. Um, and Abraham says, okay, will you please heal the house, the, the, you know, would you please heal the, uh, the household of Abimelech? And God says, yes, I will do it. Abimelech recognizes that this was because um, of this little deception, and uh, Abimelech gives Sarah back to Abraham. Uh, this is now the deja vu, and sends him uh, on his way. Uh, and so, God responds to Abraham's prayer uh, to heal, but it was really another faith failure. He failed the test again, and God intervened, redeemed his mistake, and then allowed him to keep going. But don't worry. If you fail a test twice, you get a third chance. You cannot outrun the lessons of the Lord. There are no shortcuts in God. You can't fail a test and then be like, oh, well, on to greener pastures. You can fail a test and he'll keep right with you, leading you, but there will be a return of that test because his workmanship is you. It's not what you can do for him. You are his workmanship. And he is faithful and just to complete the work that he started in each one of you. Yes. Um, So at age 100, Isaac is finally born, 25 years after the original promise. So would you wait 25 years on a promise from God? Because his timetables aren't like ours. Sometimes they're faster than we can even keep up with, and sometimes they're much slower than we're comfortable waiting for. And so I'd say now, finally, everyone celebrates the birth of Isaac, and now we're on the home stretch, and we know that Abraham and Sarah are done with their fears, done making mistakes, they've received the promise, and everything's hunky-dory. Yeah. So right after, in Genesis 21, Sarah becomes jealous of Hagar and Ishmael again, and they continue to pay a price in their family for the mistakes of the past. And it gets really contentious, and it, it results in Abraham actually sending Hagar and Ishmael out because he doesn't see another way to keep his family together, and he basically trusts God, said, God, you're going to have to help them and take care of them because I can't. It's too messy around here. I mean, that's kind of big stuff. That's not like a small, you know, that's not a little problem. That's a big problem for, these, for people. Well, God miraculously does provide for Hagar and Ishmael in their undeserved suffering. And somebody needs to hear that this morning. God will miraculously provide for you in your undeserved suffering. Abimelech says, then recognizes God's favor on Abraham because he sees 
the way the Lord, or he sees the way Abraham prospers in the land, and he asks for a treaty. Now, this is the same man that he deceived about his wife who got really angry with him the last time. And, but this time, Abraham makes a covenant of loyalty with Abimelech, and he corrects his past deception. And so then we can see when we fail the test twice, don't worry, God will give us a third chance or a fourth chance or however many chances it takes for us to finally pass the test, learn the lesson, have our fears healed, and grow closer to him. And so that's a good news. That's a great thing. And Abraham builds an altar and worships, and it's a faith victory. And right now, as I'm keeping score, Abraham is slightly on the winning side of the ledger, six faith victories, five faith failures. And now we hit the existential test, the test above all tests, the test beyond what most of us, and I would venture to say all of us, really could handle. But this test came as an exclamation point on the life of faith that Abraham and Sarah had over time, growing closer to the Lord until truly they became fully convinced that God could in fact do what he said he would do, that dead things can live again and that new things can come out of nothing. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Who tested Abraham? He said to him, Abraham, Here I am, he replied. And then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Why does God test our faith? The tests come for our benefit. C.S. Lewis said, God has not been trying an experiment experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He knew it already. It was I who didn't. In this trial, he makes us occupy the dock, the witness box, and the bench all at once. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards, and his only way of making me realize it was to knock it down. I'd like to spend just a minute to talk about the origins of our trials because we are at great peril of confusing the origins of where our trials come from. And I'm not going to try and condense all of your life experiences and your stories and your difficulties into some simple theological formula that will explain everything. I'm not. I don't know, I can't explain what you're going through. That's not what I'm trying to do. But what I can say is that we misdiagnose where our trials come from at times. And it has relatively major consequences. And there are three ways, I think there are three avenues that we often are confused about. Sometimes a trial is because of a tribulation. It's hardship brought about by sin in the world. Sin and evil work in the world. They have brought death, decay, and destruction. They are trying, and Satan and the forces of darkness are literally out to get you. I'm not trying to be sensational about it, but it is a very, it is reality 
And there is tribulation in the world that comes. Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will be pressed from the outside. And tribulation demands a kind of response from us as believers, because he who lives in us is greater than he who lives in the world. And we are called to a stance of standing and a stance of spiritual warfare, not against people, but against principalities and the forces of darkness. Some of our trials are not because of tribulation or because of sin that's in the world. Some of our trials come because there's temptation and there's sin in our own life. And it's a lot easier sometimes to see the toothpick in somebody else's eye than the log that's in our own. Sometimes we have hardship brought about by sin in our own heart. And the response to that kind of trial should be much different than the response to a trial of tribulation. A trial of temptation requires that you repent, that you have a contriteness and a humility before the Lord, that you repent and not put yourself back on the sidelines. The true test of faith is being able to repent and stay on the field, to be humble but have a greater faith in God than the disqualification that we have of ourselves because God's not benching you. And we also have trials because God tests our faith. And I, that's not necessarily popular in a faith church, and I love being in a faith church. I love that we believe in the word of faith, that God is our present help today, that he is alive, and that the miraculous signs and wonders that confirm his word and achieve the spiritual mission of the church and his kingdom that literally bring his love and power to supersede what's natural around us. I love that. But that same God also tests our faith, not because he's playing games with us, but because he wants our faith to grow deeper. He wants our relationship with him to grow deeper. There are things about him he wants to reveal to us that only come through the testing and the refining of our faith. And when our faith is tested, it's not just for our benefit, it's for all of our benefit. When Abraham's faith was tested, it wasn't just for his benefit, we're still blessed by it today. You know, my faith was tested recently. Um, Many of you know uh, Mike Burns, who is one of my closest friends and still is. Um, and he was our worship leader for a long time. And as I move really towards more um, full-time ministry next year, you know, God had spoken to me uh, about us being in ministry together. And that was very exciting to me because I love him like a brother. Um, He is... Uh, we've already fought all the fights that we're going to fight. Like, we have fought it out, we've left it on the field, and really all that's left is just we admire and we hold each other accountable and we make up for each other's weaknesses. Like, we have a really deep friendship. And, and then that was a security blanket to me, honestly. 
And so when I got the call that he was offered another position at Cornerstone in Brentwood, and he asked me what I thought, like totally open-ended. He didn't say, this is God. He didn't say, um, you know, I don't know. He just said, this is an opportunity. What do you think? And in that moment, I had to pray just like what we were praying in worship, Lord, I don't understand, but I trust you. And immediately the Holy Spirit confirmed in me three things. One, that this was a faith test for me. Two, that I had real influence over the outcome for good or worse. And that this was, in fact, an open door from God and I needed to bless him. And so I responded. I blessed him. I said, yes, this is God. I think this is an open door. I think you should take it. I don't, I don't know why. I don't know how it's all going to work out, but it's the Lord. And when I hung up the phone, I wept bitterly. My grief was significant. I did not understand how seemingly opposite directions from God could both come true. But nine months on, I can confirm without a doubt that God was and he is leading us. There's been all kinds of little confirmations along the way that he faithfully and graciously lets me know and lets Mike know and all of us kind of in that sphere that in our circle of friends, yes, he's at work. He's leading us. And I don't know how it's going to turn out. I I don't. I'm not going to manufacture a solution. I'm not going to try to make something happen. I'm going to stay in pursuit of his promise and let the Lord do what he's going to do in us because he's the one in control and he's the one that's leading. But in the moment, what would the cost have been if I misinterpreted the trial as a tribulation, thinking that this is only happening because people are, you know, out trying to, you know, build a bigger church somewhere else and they're poaching, you know, my friend and like blaming other people for this. It would have had damage. What if I would have misinterpreted the trial as a temptation and blamed it on myself? I, I wasn't a good enough friend. I didn't cast a clear enough vision for the future with the church. I wasn't really worth sticking around for. And I would have defined this trial around my own insecurity. What damage would that have done? If we confuse the origins of our trials, we will be frustrated, disillusioned, stunted in our growth and sowing discord, division, and criticism. And instead, friends, we need to be led by the Holy Spirit, only by acknowledging in those moments of pain that trials can come from these three directions and others, that we will be able to receive accurate discernment and know what to do and how to pray. The faith of Abraham was not a formula of words. You know, you can read things in Scripture and repeat them, and they mean nothing. You are a spirit, and you have a body. You are visible in the spiritual realm. If your words don't line up with what you actually believe, it's actually obvious. I don't know how, but it's obvious in the spirit. You're, I'm not saying your words aren't powerful. I am saying they are powerful. But your words must be an outpouring of what you truly believe. His word is our firm foundation. His promises are what's real. And when they fully, when you become fully convinced 
that God can do what he says he can do, that he can bring dead things back to life and make new things out of nothing, when that fully saturates your soul and your heart, the words that come out of your mouth will have power because there is congruence, there's truth in it. The faith of Abraham was not volume or personality. He wasn't the most charismatic guy, the most extroverted guy. The faith of Abraham was also not just some heavenly currency he used to buy stuff. He gets into a new place and he goes and he swipes his faith at the market and buys land and sheep and everything else. And I'm not saying that is not a cry against prosperity. God does prosper us. He longs to bless us. He longs to bring us into lands flowing with milk and honey. He is a God that gives great blessing to his children. Great blessing. But our faith should be an outpouring of our relationship with Him, not a tool to get stuff. His faith, far from a transactional impulse, was the fruit of His deep relationship with God Himself. He became, over time, fully convinced that God would do what He promised. Paul teaches us in Romans 4 that Abraham believed in the God who brings dead things back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. That's faith. Kenneth Hagin said, faith is grasping the unrealities of hope and bringing them into the realm of reality. Abraham became for us a type and a shadow of Christ, becoming like Christ before Christ with faith in God's defeat of death and resurrection power. In Hebrews, teaches us that by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice, and he who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Fundamentally, Abraham and Sarah grew to believe through their life that death was in fact not final. Death has no real power. The working of sin does produce death, but God's goodness and his power overshadows death. Yes, in the final moment of our life, but also in every moment along the way. Death is not final. Paul taught us in 2 Corinthians that we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Therefore, what is unseen is more true than what is seen. And so let us walk today and every day in that confidence because our faith should literally bring the eternal, unseen will of God from heaven into the earth. Do you really believe that God will make dead things live again in your life? That's the question. Do you really believe that God will bring new things where there was nothing? That's the question. That's where he's taking us. That's the faith he's growing in us. And from that place, our discernment will be accurate, our motives will be pure, our confidence will be assured, and our prayers powerful. I want to take just about three minutes more. I know we had to make a few extra room in the service um, for family stuff because we're a family, and church is a family. So you got an extra 10 minutes of church today. Um, 
What I want to do just in these final minutes is I want you to think about the most difficult trial you're facing right now. And I want you to hold it before the Lord again and ask Him again if you've confused the origin of the trial. Is it a tribulation that you need to stand firm against and engage in spiritual warfare? Or is it temptation and sin in your own heart that you need to repent from? Or maybe God is testing your faith and you need to submit to his test so that he can draw you closer to himself. Testing is not easy. Stretching is not easy, but it's for your benefit. He loves you more than you love yourself. And his love is dependable.